Good evening, how y'all feeling? All right, amen. It's a privilege and a joy to be with y'all this evening. If you got your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 in the New Testament, first book, Matthew chapter 5. Tonight we're going to be in verses 1 through 12. It's the Beatitudes, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And if y'all would do me a favor, would you stand with me as we read the Word of God tonight? I appreciate your patience with me. You got younger knees than I do, so you'll be all right. I want to read the passage and then pray, and then we're going to dive into the Word of God this evening. The whole theme of what we're going to talk about tonight is what does it look like to be a citizen in the kingdom of God? It's one thing to talk about it. It's one thing to have this big lofty concept of the kingdom of God, but it's another thing to actually say, this is what it looks like to be a legitimate citizen in the real kingdom of God. And this passage highlights what it looks like. The word of God says, seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him. Verse 2. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, in this moment we are seeking you. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us clarity and wisdom on what it looks like to be a legitimate kingdom of the city of God. And Father, I pray that as we think through the city of God, we understand the framework of the kingdom of God and the beautiful truth that we see that we can be those who promote and market that which is the kingdom. Speak to us in this moment and allow us, Lord God, to not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So the main point that I think these verses kind of center around is this. Verses 2 through 12 are what we call the Beatitudes. And I believe the Beatitudes are a snapshot of what kingdom life for the citizen of God's kingdom looks like. The Beatitudes are a snapshot of literally what it looks like to be living in the kingdom of God. Now there was a great North African bishop in our Christian faith known as Augustine. Some people say Augustine. And he wrote this book called The City of God. And the city of God is literally talking about the kingdom of God. And every single person that lives in the city of God are those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. But then he also talked about the city of man, which was the opposite of the city of God. And what he talked about is that we, although we have embraced Jesus, we're citizens of the city of God, we ain't living there right now. So we're living here in the broken city of man. 
And the Beatitudes help us understand what it looks like to walk with that tension of being someone who is a legit citizen of the kingdom, but we live in a fallen, broken, sinful world that is not seeking to follow after Jesus. And regularly, we are being drawn and enticed and tempted to not act like a citizen of God's kingdom, but rather a citizen of the city of man. Before we sit down and watch a movie and go into a movie theater, the lights dim down. And typically, what do you think people should do when the lights dim down? Turn off phones, be quiet, stop talking, stop texting, ain't worried about the gram at that moment, need to focus in. And before the movie comes on, what do they typically play? Previews, trailers, exactly. The thing that I want us to understand is that before we see the feature-length film that could be an hour and a half to two hours long, we see these short little minute and a half to two-minute previews or trailers. And they put the best things in those so that we can say, oh, man, I can't wait till that comes out. Oh, man, I'm there Thanksgiving. I'm there Christmas. Space Jam 2 coming out with LeBron, I'm there. Like all these things, right, they're putting out for us because they're promoting and marketing a full-length film, not just the trailer. Well, as citizens of the kingdom of God, when we live in a broken world, we, when we come together as the local church, we're like that preview of what heaven is going to be like. We're like that trailer, that minute and a half snapshot to get people to say, I want to go to the kingdom. I want to be part of the kingdom. Even though the kingdom is not here, we recognize that there is coming a day when our king is going to return for us. So we have to think, now how can I live to be a preview of the kingdom that is to come that will let people know that when I'm with Jesus, it is better than the best that this world has to offer during this life. And that's where the Beatitudes come in. Because the Beatitudes help us to understand our role in being a previewer of the kingdom of God. So Jesus says in verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed. I'm going to pause right there. Blessed. Blessed. This is a very, very full, full word. It's not just saying, oh, happy. Happy is the person. No, that doesn't do it justice. It's like this. This word blessed, it reminds me of a time I took my wife out to a nice restaurant and we ordered chicken and vegetables. And about 15, 20 minutes went by, and the waiter came out and gave me a plate and gave my wife a plate. And I said, oh, excuse me, excuse me, sir. And he was like, yeah. I said, we didn't order appetizers. We, we ordered the chicken and the vegetables. And he said, I know, that's the chicken and the vegetable plate. And I said, no, there's like one little tiny thread strip of chicken, and there's like two little baby carrots, and I don't know what this green mush is. So, like, that can't, this has to be an appetizer, bruh. And he was like... No, that's the chicken platter that you ordered. I wrote it down. I'm like, number one, I don't even see any chicken. Number two, this ain't no platter. Like, this is an appetizer at best. I mean, I'm scared to sneeze because all my food's going to go away. And I'm like, y'all charging me how much, bro? I'm like, oh, I'm about to tell Yelp everything about this place, right? So, like, I'm frustrated because there was more plate than more food. Now, when I think about that experience and I think about Thanksgiving at my crib, when we have Thanksgiving in my crib and all the family come through, man, there's obviously turkey, there's mashed potatoes, green bean casserole, corn casserole, there's ham hocks, there's greens, there's tamales. 
There's all kinds of this great food, man, enchilada casserole, you name it, rice casserole, like we got all the fixings. And the crazy thing about it is when I go sit down, I got more food than plates on my plate. Like I got to have like my hand over here with a napkin because that gravy starting to slide down like a Chick-fil-A slide off my mashed potatoes, right? So I'm sitting there like that's a plate of food. That's a platter. That is an excuse for food. This is full. This is robust. That, that's weak. So if I were to say blessed means happy, no, that's that little appetizer of a plate. But when we think about what this word blessed means, think of my Thanksgiving plate that is overflowing. So the reality of what blessed means is that it is a full plate of joy because I know my relationship with God is right and that relationship comes with benefits. So the reality of being blessed has nothing to do with your circumstances. It has nothing to do with the weather. It has nothing to do with if you're varsity, JV, or the freshman team. It has nothing to do with your first, second, or third chair in the orchestra or the band. It has nothing to do with your performance. It has everything to do with the fact that you know God because Jesus Christ is your Savior. So you are blessed every moment of the day. Psalm chapter 1 verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Psalm 32, 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin has been covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whom spirit there is no deceit. When you have been washed from all of your sins, and your sin debt has been paid off, you are blessed. And it's not just I'm happy because everything is going right. No, my being blessed is superseding what the weather is. It's superseding what my circumstances are. I remain in a state of being blessed because I'm a citizen of God's kingdom. So the condition for getting this gift known as being blessed is knowing Jesus Christ. You cannot be blessed if you do not know Jesus Christ as Savior. He is the one who has saved those who are following him from the righteous judgment of God. So we can actually live in joy and be blessed as we move through this life. So having this idea of being blessed now frees us up to say, how can I now put my being blessed on display? That's where we get into the Beatitudes. So Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are those who have declared spiritual bankruptcy. Spiritual bankruptcy is kind of like bankruptcy in our American economic system where if people spend more than they have coming in and they recognize that my debt is greater than the money that I have coming in and even if I made the minimum payments or if I put more than the minimum payments towards my bills, I will never ever be able to pay off all of my debt. So what do they do? They go to the court system. They don't do what Michael Scott did on the office. Michael Scott literally stepped outside and said, I declare bankruptcy. And then Oscar said, bruh, it don't even work like that. Like, you can't just yell, I declare bankruptcy, and all your debt goes away. There's a process that the American court system has that you have to bring 
all of your proof of income, you've got to bring all of your debt, every single one of your creditors, and you have to say, it is impossible for me to pay them off. And then you have to walk away from that debt. And if you qualify, then the courts will determine that your debt has been wiped away. Now, it's not always a good thing to do that. And there's many more nuances to that. And I'm not going to get into it because I'm not an economist and I'm not a financial advisor. But what I will say is that there is this idea that I must go to the legal system to say my debt is greater than I can pay off and I need help having my debt wiped away. And when that happens, then individuals now are cleared from most of the debt. So what does that have to do with being poor in spirit? It has everything to do with being poor in spirit, but in a greater way. See, the Bible clearly tells us that we are born with a debt that not a single one of us can pay off. The reality of our sin runs deep all the way to when we were conceived in our mother's wombs. Psalm 51.5, David says that sin was already inside of him. It was already inside of you. Psalm 58.3 tells us that from the womb the wicked come forth speaking lies, which means naturally every single one of us is a liar. Nobody had to teach you how to lie. Nobody had to teach you how to sin. Nobody had to teach you how to steal or to cheat. You naturally did those things, and I naturally did those things because according to Ephesians chapter 2, we were born dead in sin. Jesus says in John 8, 34, that if you commit one sin, you're a slave to sin. And God tells us in his word that there is a penalty and a price for sin. The penalty is death, and the price is the shedding of blood from a sacrifice that has no stain or blemish. So if we have sin from the time of our conception and we sin from the time of our birth until whenever, the reality is we can never sacrifice anything because we are already tainted. So we are disqualified from trying to make any payment towards our own sin debt. That's like if I were to go to a gas station and I were to get, get some Takis and some Hot Cheetos and I walked up in there with a $5 Monopoly bill and they're like, that's going to be $4.32. I'm like, bam, there you go, cuz, keep the change and walk away. They're going to be like, hey, wait, 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 brother, look at here, look at here, look at here. That's a pink $5 Monopoly bill. And I'm like, I know, keep the change. They're like, brother, we, we take American dollars up in here. You got a debit card? We can swipe it right now. You got cash, a real Abraham Lincoln. You got five Washingtons. You got anything that's American money because that's what we take. And I'm like, I gave you a $5 bill. They're like, brother, whoosh, this ain't real money. I couldn't pay off and rightfully walk out the store with my Takis and Hot Cheetos because there's an amount that is owed and I can't pay, and the type of money that I thought I could pay with, they said, we don't take that. So when we think about our debt, it's greater than $4.32. It is an amount that not a single one of us could ever pay off. But here's the deal. If God says that the price, the only form of currency that he accepts is shed blood from a sacrifice that dies and the sacrifice has to be without blemish, without stain, and all of us are disqualified, we recognize we have to tell God my debt is greater than I could ever pay off because I have no currency to give. There's nothing I have that can pay off my sin debt. That's where the good news of Jesus comes in. 
Because Jesus, who was fully God, left the comforts of the crib of heaven, and he put clothes on, and he lived in perfect obedience to every single one of God's commands. So he was pure, without stain, without blemish, without sin. And Jesus rose his hand, and he volunteered to climb on a cross. And on the cross, God punished him by putting him to death which is the penalty for sin in our place, even though Jesus never sinned. And Jesus shed his blood, which was the only currency that the Father accepted. And the reality is, Jesus was legit buried because he had to have a legit death in order to have a legit resurrection. And then three days later, the stone rolled away and he walked out victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And that was God telling the whole universe, I received the payment of Jesus' shed blood. So every single human being who hears this message and they feel the pull on their heart to declare bankruptcy, you will be saved because of what Jesus did in your place. That's what the gospel tells us. The gospel is not just head knowledge. The gospel literally is an uncovering of our whole life and say, Jesus, be king over every inch of me. Be king over my sex drive. Be king over my porn addiction. Be king over my story that's broken with molestation. Be king over my addiction to prescription pills. Be king over my pride. Be king over my hate. Be king over my racism. Be king over all of me because I declare bankruptcy and I need you to save Save me. That's what it means to be blessed when all of your debt has been discharged and wiped away. But let me tell you one more benefit about spiritual bankruptcy that American bankruptcy does not do. In American bankruptcy, once your debt is forgiven, so to speak, you got to build yourself back up. You, you got to build your own credit. And when you go to apply for a loan or when you go to apply for something, they're going to be like, hey, we good. We just need to run that credit report. And on that credit report, boom, bankruptcy. Ah, you know what? Why don't you see us in about six to seven years? And it's like, well, well, wait a minute. How am I supposed to rebuild? I don't know. That's on you, bro. And they keep it moving. But spiritual bankruptcy is amazing. Because with the shed blood of Jesus, all of our sin debt has been washed away. So basically, that takes us out of debt. And it puts us back to zero. But here's the good news. Because Jesus had a perfect life, when we say, I declare spiritual bankruptcy, Jesus saved me, now God takes Jesus' perfect life and he direct deposits it onto our account. So now we have an infinite amount of righteousness that God sees when he looks at us. So not only has all of my sin been forgiven, not only has all of my debt been washed away, now when God looks at me, he sees the perfect life of Jesus and there is an unlimited amount of righteousness that has been deposited on my account all because of Jesus. That is a benefit to declaring spiritual bankruptcy. So in my mind, I just got to be honest, why in your right mind would you not declare spiritual bankruptcy? Why? When God knows the depth of your addiction, he knows the depth of your struggle, he knows the depth of your pain, he knows how many times you failed to take in your own life, and he keeps you alive so that you would hear this truth, that you would turn away from your sin and repent and run to God who has open arms to say, when you declare spiritual bankruptcy, you are blessed because yours is the kingdom of heaven. 
You become a kingdom citizen for all of eternity once you declare spiritual bankruptcy. Being a citizen in the kingdom of God means you are a part of the family of God. He will never kick you out of his family. He will never disown you. He will never stop loving you. You are going to sin even as a follower of Jesus. You are going to fall flat on your face spiritually. You are going to struggle with addictions. You're going to struggle with your flesh. You're going to struggle with laziness. And you know what? He's still going to love you. He ain't ever going to stop. And his grace cannot be outsinned. It can't. Because remember, the infinite righteousness of Jesus covers you. Because you had no goodness to cover yourself with. So you were completely dependent on Jesus. And when we begin to process through, man, I feel convicted. I feel broken because of my sin. Guess what? That's being blessed. I know it sounds, it sounds so crazy to say, wait a minute, I'm broken because I recognize the depth of my sin, and I'm grieved. Yes, that's a sign of being blessed because Jesus follows up the bankruptcy by saying, blessed are those who mourn. He's not talking about mourning over somebody that just got killed. He's not talking about mourning over a hard day. He's talking about those who enter into the kingdom of God recognize the depth of their own sin. See, when you recognize that God has forgiven you from everything that you've done and you begin to replay all the dirt, all the sin, all the filthiness that you have participated in and you're ashamed and you're embarrassed and you're guilty by that, it begins to hit you and weigh you down. And I promise you, you don't want to run back out and go do those things anymore. You don't say, now that I've been forgiven, that's a license for me to go do whatever sin I want. No, it's the opposite. It's, I don't want to do that stuff anymore. But then my flesh keeps craving it. My flesh keeps wanting to go back to the pleasure of the things that I used to do. But inside my heart and my soul, there's this war inside of me. Yes, and it leads us to mourn. It leads us to be broken, to say, God, I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to look at that website anymore. I don't want to slide in their DMs anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. But my flesh is weak. And that's a tension that every Christian wrestles with. You're not alone. You're not alone. And Hebrews 4 tells us that we have a Savior who's not disconnected from that tension. He was tempted, just like you and I are, to sin with the lust of our flesh, the lust of our eyes, and the pride of our life. But in every time, every time he was tempted, he said, no, no, no. And he triumphed over temptation so that he could say, I have been tempted. And when you fall into temptation and you sin, and even though you're a citizen of the kingdom, I said no for the sake of your soul. So my righteousness and my triumph over the temptation that you've fallen into still covers you. It still covers you. See, Satan doesn't want you to know the depth of Jesus' love for you. Satan doesn't want you to understand that in the midst of the tension of struggling with fleshly addictions, that Jesus is still there. He wants you to feel like Jesus has left you. He wants you to feel like the church has abandoned you. 
He wants you to feel like God the Father has no more forgiveness for you, and none of those realities are found in the Word of God. As a Jesus follower, you're a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. And when you mourn over the brokenness of your sin, Jesus says, you are guaranteed to be comforted. You're guaranteed to be comforted. See, what I love about the way they shall be comforted is written is that it's written in what we call the future. So that means something has to happen before comfort is received. You know what has to happen before you can be comforted? you got to mourn. You've got to think about the weightiness of your sinfulness. And you've got to come to that breaking point where you say, I want to surrender my idols to you, Lord. I want to surrender my addictions. I want to surrender me to you. As a Jesus follower, mourning over your sin is an expression of being blessed because you know that when you sin, it puts tension in your relationship with your good, good father. And you don't want that tension. You want to be in a right standing with your father because you know what he has done for you to save you. So here's what I love. This, they shall be comforted means the person who's mourning doesn't comfort themselves. They're comforted directly by God. God meets you in the place of mourning. I'm going to say that again, and I want you to think about it. Think about the times. Maybe I've mentioned sins that, you, that you're struggling with. Maybe I've said some things that you're like, dang, this brother is reading my text messages. Like, how does he know? I don't. It's the Lord speaking to you through me. But here's the deal. Listen, in the moment of conviction, in the moment when your sin is found out, Think about that. Think of the shame. Think of the guilt. Think of the brokenness. Think of the conviction that you feel. All those emotions. And the word tells us that as we're mourning over our sinful decisions, God is there. God comforts you in the place of mourning. He doesn't leave you. He never kicks you while you're down. He doesn't beat you. He loves you. He comforts you. He embraces you. The opposite maybe of what your biological dad or mom has done for you. The opposite maybe of what your friends have done to you. The opposite of maybe what you do to you. I'm very self-critical of myself. And when I make a mistake, I'm very hard on myself. I actually treat myself the opposite of how the father treats me. And my own fleshly reaction <laughs> makes it so hard for me to believe that God could comfort me in the midst of mourning over my own sin. But the truth of God's word stands, whether I feel it like it's truth or not, it's real and it's factual. He meets us in the moment of mourning and he comforts us. As kingdom citizens, you are guaranteed to be comforted by your king even when you disobey him. Jesus goes on to say, blessed are the meek. Those are the ones that have self-control. This is what's amazing. This is when we really start to show what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen. Because it says, blessed are the meek, 
which means those are the ones who are gentle and they respond with compassion. To who? They respond to the kingdom citizens who declare spiritual bankruptcy and who are mourning over their sin. See, if Jesus doesn't kick us while we're down, we should never kick our brothers and sisters while they're down. That's what the world does. You want to be countercultural? You know what? Don't laugh and don't go in on the memes about Jesse right now. Everybody talking about Jesse and oh, he lied and he, this whole attack. You know what? The world is having a field day with him right now. Don't participate in that foolishness. That's a fellow human being. It doesn't matter if he's a kingdom citizen or not. We, as kingdom citizens, shouldn't be participating in that. R. Kelly, they, about, they indicted that brother right now. All this stuff going on with R. Kelly, everybody's got memes, making jokes about them, the owner of the Patriots. Everybody's like got all these jokes, laughing, giggling. They're kicking them while they're down. Even though the things that they did are not in step with the word of God, I don't expect the non-believers to live in harmony with Scripture. So when their spot gets blown and they get busted for doing what sinners do, who am I to laugh at them? Who am I to make fun of them? Who am I to make jokes about them or forward memes about them or gifts about them? That's what the world does. Kingdom citizens shouldn't be doing that stuff. This is when it means that we are to be meek, which means do you have the capacity and the ability to forward that, to retweet that? to like that, to repost it on the gram. Yes, you do, but meekness says, no, my power and my ability and even my freedom to do that, the meekness that the Spirit of God gives me says, no, it's power or freedom that is under control. I am not going to participate in kicking another human being while they're down. I'm not. Even if in my mind it's justifiable, I need to fall back and let God be the judger. Because I got other things in my life that I need to continue to focus on. Specifically, walking in step with the Spirit of God. Because I promise you, it's all fun and games until you're the meme. It's all fun and games until somebody posts that video about you. It's all fun and games until somebody shares that nude that you sent them. It's all funny up until that point. That's why we have to be proactive to show meekness. Because those who show meekness, Jesus says, you're blessed because you're going to inherit the earth. See, what's amazing about the reality of being meek is that you don't just have maybe a little portion when it comes to the kingdom of God. When Jesus says you're going to inherit the earth, what he's saying is you have ownership in the kingdom of God. Because when you embrace Jesus, you are a co-heir with Jesus to the throne. You have been adopted into God's family and God has made you an heir to his throne because of what Jesus has done for you. So he's talking about ownership in the kingdom, which is a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 37, verses 10 and 11. That when Jesus finally brings the kingdom into its final, what we call consummation, which is the final installment and permanent establishing of his kingdom when it's literal and visible for all of eternity, we will rule and reign with him.
So we need to act as if we are part of God's kingdom and as if we actually have a place of ownership in the kingdom of God. That doesn't lead us to be arrogant or pompous or to make ourselves holier than now. It means that we can walk with compassion like Jesus walked with compassion. That with the Holy Spirit living inside of us, he gives us the strength to say no to our flesh and yes to obeying God's word. See, this is why Jesus then naturally says, okay, I'm building this life of what a kingdom citizen looks like. He says, in addition to being meek, blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Which means, blessed are those who are in a constant pursuit for justice, for equity, and for moral purity. This word, hunger and thirst, is written meaning it should always be an ongoing reality. Kingdom citizens should always have an appetite for justice and equity and moral purity. We should always be thirsty to see God's will moving forward in our society. So even going back to those three individuals that I talked about that are in the news today because of indictments, because of warrants, because of arrests, we pray for justice to take place in those scenarios and situations. We ask God to bring justice to the abusers. We ask God to bring healing and comfort to those who have been abused. And my wife is a survivor of sexual abuse. And that's why in our home we have these talks with our kids. And we walk them through what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen in real time in 2019. When the culture is moving so fast and when we have all these issues that we all have knowledge about, what should the kingdom citizen's response be to these moments? Well, if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, then we don't play judge or jury or executioner. We say, God, bring justice in your timing. Bring justice about by your sovereign power. And may we continuously be those who pursue justice and equality for individuals in our societies. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, we have no issue confessing our personal sins because we know that part of God's paradigm of justice means that he was just and the justifier by punishing Jesus in our place. If there was ever an act of injustice that was greater than any other act of injustice that has ever been committed, that is being committed, or that will ever be committed, it is God in the flesh taking upon himself the penalty of all of our sin. Jesus did not have to take our sin debt on himself. Jesus legitimately said, Lord, pour it on me what you would pour on them for all of eternity. But the reality is, is that God punished Jesus. And it wasn't like a hand clap. It wasn't like he just tapped them and sent him to the corner. No, Jesus was physically beaten beyond recognition. He was beaten. His beard was ripped out. He was spit on. He was smacked. He was ridiculed. He was lied about. He went to court a couple of times on false charges. They could never find him guilty, but they still killed him. That's injustice. But it was part of God's plan. 
so that we would hear this act of injustice and see that God was still just because Jesus volunteered to do that so that we could be forgiven and God would never pour his wrath on us, that God would never punish us, so he punished Jesus in our place. That's why we are passionate about justice, but at the same time, we balance our passion with justice to recognize we don't always have all the facts. We can't always jump on the bandwagon of what's now. We need to be students of our culture and students of the word to know how to rightly respond to our culture with the word of God. That's what kingdom citizens do. So when there's injustice, yes, we speak out against it. When there's not Equity, yes, we want to mobilize to see equity in a situation. But at the same time, we want to pursue purity. In James chapter 1, we read where God tells us the type of religion that he actually accepts. See, in the 60s and the 70s in our country, that's the 1960s and the 1970s, the reality was there was a cliche that went on, it's not about a religion, it's about a relationship. That's partially true. Because you have to have a relationship with Jesus in order to have a right relationship with God and be a kingdom citizen. But that doesn't mean that God rejects all form of religion. No. James chapter 1 legit tells us the type of religion God accepts. He says that if you don't know how to control your tongue, you deceive yourself into thinking that your Christianity is legit. And it's not. But religion that God accepts, that he receives... That he desires for kingdom citizens to practice to visit the orphans and widows in their time of distress. Which means the poor and the marginalized. Those with special needs. The homeless. Those who are struggling. Those who are on drugs. Those who are not the focus of our society. But those on the margins. Like if I'm looking down the dead center, I can't see people to my left or to my right, on the periphery or the margins of the auditorium, I can only see right here. And so often, religions may look to seek to only meet the needs or cater to this group right here while they neglect everybody over there. So when you have sins of classism and racism and sexism and elitism, right, and prejudices, when you have these things, people push those that they don't like, don't look like, don't want to be around out to the margin. And God says, that is not the religion I accept. The religion I accept is that you look to meet everybody's needs. And whenever somebody is in a point of stress or they're afflicted or they're oppressed, you run to them while they're oppressed and afflicted and you seek to meet their needs. But it's not just that. He says, on top of doing that, you keep yourself pure from the pollution of the world which means you don't participate in the sinful, wicked rhythms of the world. So God says, meet the needs of those who are in need and don't follow the pattern of this world. That's the religion that he expects and that's the religion that he accepts from kingdom citizens. That's why we should hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the blessedness comes with the fact that we're going to be satisfied. God will satisfy us. By allowing us to see righteousness, justice, and equity. It may not always happen during this life. But there's coming a day when Jesus, who is the righteous judge, that every unrepentant sinner 
will stand before and justice will be served. That's not something that we should just, yeah, no, it's something that should grieve us. Because they have the opportunity to be forgiven. They have the opportunity to hear the gospel. They have the opportunity to become kingdom citizens. But brothers and sisters, hear me when I say this. That if abusers come to faith, there's still consequences for sin. And justice can still be served on this side of eternity. So when someone is convicted of their crimes and they go to prison and they accept Jesus, it doesn't mean that they're going to get out of prison. Because justice is being administered with every day they serve that sentence. These are the realities that we have to think through. Prayerfully, these are the realities that safeguard us. This is why even with the Me Too movement and everything that's going on, like we have to begin to have these real conversations in the church to apply scripture to the brokenness and the woundedness of everything that's going on in our world and society today. That we tell abusers, come forward and repent and confess and make things right so that your victims can begin healing. And the church should be the place. That, that, that victims can come forward and say, I was abused, and they should be believed. And we have to see reconciliation for these crimes. See, this is not a Christianity that just says, Jesus, make me rich and make my problems go away. This is the real faith and burden of what it means to be a kingdom citizen who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Life is messy, and not everything is so cookie-cut and clean. And God knows that, and we know that. So we approach the scriptures with that understanding that it's messy, it's hard, but it's not impossible to live righteous. And as kingdom citizens, we should be the ones setting the pace by confessing and repenting. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. Those are the people that show compassion and they freely forgive people who have hurt them. What's amazing to me is that Jesus doesn't give a situation. He doesn't say, blessed are the merciful when somebody cuts them off on the highway. Blessed are the merciful when somebody steals their iPhone. Like, he doesn't just say, like, here's the only time you should be merciful. He says, no, you need to be merciful all the time. So even in light of the hard discussion that we just came out of with, well, then what about the consequences for sin? See, here's the deal. Justice in the system of court does not allow you to say, I can stay unforgiving of that individual. And just because you forgive somebody, if there was a crime committed, you have the right to communicate and say that I desire justice for the crimes that were committed against me. You can walk in forgiveness but still pursue justice, brothers and sisters. And there was a recent article that was released that talked about hundreds of abusers that were told, or excuse me, hundreds of victims that were told, no, you can't press charges, you can't do this because these serious crimes were committed against you. That's not the Christian way you're supposed to forgive. Yes, you forgive, but you can also pursue justice if there was a crime committed against you. And these are the things that we have to hear. These are the things that we have to walk in the tensions of. So that healing can take place in the hearts of those who have been victimized. Those who have been abused. Those who have been molested. Those things hurt. And there's so many people that have walked away from hearing the gospel in churches. Because the sins of their abusers have been covered up and their abusers have been protected. 
And the victims are killing themselves. They're turning to drugs. They hate God. They blame God for the sins of the people who profess to know God that build systems to protect themselves. God is not pleased with that. It breaks the heart of God. These are the tensions that come with being kingdom citizens. This is the weightiness of what real, authentic Jesus following looks like. It means that Jesus needs to be king over all of our story. Every single life situation. All the pain and baggage that we have in our lives. He must be king over all of it. Because when you show mercy, God says you will receive mercy. In Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 54, God says he has an ever-flowing amount of compassion and mercy that he gives to those who are suffering. Just because you go through suffering, please never think that God leaves you. As a kingdom citizen, he is with you. In addition to that, he Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. A desire for purity is what they want deep down inside. They want to be pure. They want to be righteous. The heart of the individual, basically, that's the core of our humanity. That's the humanness of who we are. And it's real. You're a real person with a real story. You have real pain. You experience real joy. You have emotions. You're a real human being, and God recognizes that. Being a kingdom citizen does not divorce your humanity from your faith, but it integrates the reality of the Holy Spirit's power to transform our humanity so that we can desire not the pleasures of the world, but to walk purely before our King. And it says that when you're pure in heart, you're blessed because you will see God, which means you will have an ongoing, intimate connection with God. The last two, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. A peacemaker is somebody who stops a conflict and brings the people who are fighting together so that they'll stop fighting. This is the person who wants to see conflict resolved. They want to see the problem solved. They want to see a solution to bring the people together so that they'll stop fighting. A peacemaker commits their life to the way of peace, even when the other person wants to keep fighting. Even when the other person wants to keep throwing little jabs, we don't have to respond. We don't have to go back and troll people. We ain't got to hire Russian bots to go after them, all right? We ain't got to do that stuff. A peacemaker says, me and God have peace because Jesus saved me. He's the prince of peace. God will never be an enemy of mine, and I will never be an enemy of God. As a kingdom citizen, you have that peace. So Jesus says, now go and make peace. Be a peacemaker. In my life, the challenging things that have taken place is when I'm trying to be a peacemaker and someone doesn't want to have peace with me, those are the times that I struggle with depression the most. Those are the times that I just say, God, 
get rid of the problem now because I'm sick of this. I'm tired of this. This person doesn't want peace. Everything I do, they criticize. Everything I say, they scrutinize. I can never do anything right in their eyes. And it's like, Lord, I've tried to make peace, but they don't want peace peace. So guess what that does? Now that makes me feel like I don't have peace with God because I feel like he's making me suffer in this way. But that's not the case. What God is showing me is that in the midst of that trial, I still have peace with him. And then I need to continue to pray for that individual that they would come to peace with God. Sometimes it has happened. Other times it has not. But I should not allow circumstances to make me think that it disrupts my peace with God. And it neither does it allow me to now stop trying to be a peacemaker, but I want to keep on being a peacemaker. The peacemakers are blessed because they'll be sons of God, which means God literally calls you his child. Your identity is secure in being in the family of God. And you're mirroring what Jesus did. He made peace with us and God. By being the one who bridged the gap between God and us. He's the ultimate peacemaker. And he is our king. So we should be pursuers of peace. And then finally, as you live as a kingdom citizen, as you stand for truth, you're not going to be accepted by everybody in this world. You're not. You're not going to make everybody happy. When you stand for what the Word of God says, you can say things with the most compassionate tone. You can say things with tears streaming down your face with tenderness and mercy. And if somebody disagrees with God's Word, it doesn't mean that they're going to receive you or what you say. So we as believers, especially in America, we should not think that we are never going to face persecution. We will. In various forms. If the adults in your home are not walking with Jesus and you want to walk right, you probably are going to get some persecution from them. Friend groups that you've been a part of for a long time, you embrace Jesus, you're a kingdom citizen, and you start living out what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen, you may get persecuted, you may get ridiculed, you may get bullied. And the reality of this is Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Basically what persecution is, is that you are a person who is seeking to live righteous and you are now the target for the attacks of those who are unrighteous. Jesus, he fulfilled the prophecy of what it means to be persecuted in Isaiah. They persecuted the one who never sinned. And the amazing thing about it is the very person they were persecuting, he was actually dying for their sins. As we even think through that, Jesus says, when they revile you, that word revile means to magnify small errors. Like if you do something, like make some small mistake, and they blow it up and won't let you forget about it. That, that's what it means to be reviled. Or, or they add details and they lie to embellish to make you look worse than what you really are. Like that, that's what it means to be reviled. And then it says if those who have all kinds of evil uttered against them, that means slander. That means when somebody purposefully wants to destroy your reputation and they consistently say things about you that are not true and they consistently tell people 
things that are not true about you. We've all heard the phrase, misery loves company. Well, those who are miserable because of the conviction of what a kingdom citizen is living like, they will then go make company for themselves by slandering the kingdom citizen. And Jesus calls you blessed because you endure these things. Brothers and sisters, we have brothers and sisters your age living in the Middle East, living in Africa, living in Asia, living in Russia, living in South America, who are facing legitimate persecutions for being kingdom citizens and followers of Jesus. One of the stories that ripped my heart out when I read it was this girl that lives in a Central Asian country where it's Muslim-dominated. She's 16, and she left the Islamic faith and embraced Jesus. And it was found out that she was a Christian. They found out she's a kingdom citizen. She's 16. She was brutally beaten and raped by multiple men. And as if that's not bad enough, then she was forced to marry the first attacker who raped her. They took away her Bible. They took her away from her family. And she was forced to become a wife of the first man that raped her. Why? Because she loves Jesus. Because she is a kingdom citizen. And she said she will not turn her back on Jesus. I can't imagine the mental images burned in her head. I can't imagine what she feels that her body's been ravaged over and over and over again. Because in my mind, I would think, God, where are you? Stop this. Why are you not stopping this? Where's the justice? Where's my salvation? But what amazed me most about that story is that she was able to escape. And through all of her attack, through that forced marriage, having to live as a servant to one of her attackers, she never wavered in her faith in Jesus. And I think about that in my life, when I don't face anything like my sister faced, and my heart is like, what's it worth? What's it worth? Compare when you don't get to go out on Friday night when everybody else. Compare because you're like, oh, I don't want to stop smoking weed. Compare that you're like, I don't want to give this up. I don't want to give that up. Or Jesus, I'm going through a hard time, which are legit hard times. I'm not minimizing it. But think about how we struggle with that when this dear sister endured all she endured and she never stopped loving Jesus. That convicts me, man. That makes me feel like, dang, Damon, you're weak, bro. You got to step up your, I mean, learn. I have to learn from my sister. She's modeling for me what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen in the midst of torture because she's a kingdom citizen. She understands what it means to be blessed when she was persecuted. As I invite the worship team to come back up, I'd like you to stand with me. Jesus says the persecuted are blessed and that they're to rejoice and be glad for their reward is great in heaven. 
They persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is saying, rejoice because you're in good company. Don't be surprised when persecution comes your way. Because kingdom citizens who were born and died, they finished their race. Remember, brothers and sisters, these beatitudes, they're a snapshot of what it looks like to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. My question for you is, are you blessed? The only way to answer that is this. Have you declared spiritual bankruptcy and asked Jesus to wash away your sin debt that you can never pay off? Do you mourn over your sinful decisions and run back to the heart of the God who saved you? Do you comfort those who are mourning over their sinfulness? Have you developed a desire for justice and equity and moral purity? Do you share compassion? And do you extend forgiveness to the people who have hurt you the most? Do you have a heart that desires to be pure in your lifestyle? Do you seek to make peace? And do you rejoice and continue to press on? even when others persecute you. On this side of eternity, while we live in the broken city of man, not a single one of us kingdom citizens will live perfectly. Not a single one of us are going to live perfectly, and that's okay, because Jesus lived perfectly in our place. But the reality of it is, is that we have the assurance that as being citizens of the kingdom of God, when we live out these beatitudes, we're showing the world what the kingdom of God is going to look like in perfect form when Jesus comes back. So my question as we enter into this time of reflection and worship, are you a citizen of the kingdom? As we sing this final selection, I want you to think through that as we sing these words. And as you break out a little later to talk to your community group leaders, my heart is that you would approach them to say, either yes, I'm a citizen in the kingdom and I'm struggling, or say I'm not a citizen in the kingdom, but I want to be. I want to declare bankruptcy and I want Jesus to save me. So as we prepare to sing, would you join me as I pray? And we will go before the Lord and may he speak to us. Father, I thank you for these moments that we have had tonight. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to every single one of our hearts, that you would convict us of sin where there's sin, that you would give us hope where there's hopelessness, that you would give us comfort where there's mourning because of our sin. And if there are those here, Lord God, that are not kingdom citizens, Father, I pray that you would draw them to Jesus because your word says that Jesus will never cast away anyone that you draw to them. So I pray that if you are going to make kingdom citizens tonight, do what you do. And for those of us who were in the struggle as kingdom citizens, surface the sins that we need to confess. Break our hearts and allow us to be comforted by you and give us the boldness to continue on living as a preview of your coming kingdom. For it's in King Jesus' name we pray. Amen.